0: From CBR News in Fort Morgan, this is Colorado Matters. Fort Morgan, unlike other communities on the Plains, is adding people. Many of them are immigrants and refugees. And getting them vaccinated for COVID can be easy.
1: As long as information is being relied in people's home language, their heart language, the language that they understand the most.
0: We'll meet two women trying to raise Morgan County's vaccination rate, which lags behind the state average. Then, a Main Street businessman says you either open your arms to a growing
2: population... Or, as other towns in eastern Colorado have seen, you can force them away or not want growth, and your town can slowly start to shrivel up. And
0: later, a worrisome sound as we check back in with a Fort Morgan restaurateur...
3: You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service.
0: ...and some love for Glenn Miller...
4: When your car needs too many costly repairs, or stops running, or it's just time for a new car, give the old one to CPR. It's so simple. Your car will be picked up at your convenience. When it sells, you'll get a tax receipt. The proceeds help make CPR the station you turn to for factual news and uplifting music. So let your old car make great radio happen. Get started at CPR.org.
3: On the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again.
0: This is Colorado Matters but On the road, road Again from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner Not in Fort Morgan, coming to you from the Cover Theatre on Main Street. We are traveling the state this week and next to see how folks have weathered an unrelenting year and a half. Here in Northeast Colorado, the pandemic looks a bit different from the rest of the state. While the big Cargill meatpacking plant had notable COVID outbreaks in the spring of 2020, the region as a whole was adding new cases at a slower rate this summer, although there's been an uptick in recent weeks, no doubt related to the contagious Delta variant. Trish McLean, a nurse, is public health director for Morgan County and five others, and gave us the lay of the land.
4: We definitely have less population out here and we have less population density, I think is a huge one. So we don't have some of the potential exposure risk that you would see in a more populated area. So we don't have really large indoor venues where you may see a lot of people together, not social distancing or or, you know, we don't have those really large venues out here. Uh, a lot of our Industry is agricultural, so it's outside. And we know that being outside is is better than being inside if somebody is contagious.
0: Northeast Colorado isn't a big tourist destination, McLean says, which makes it less susceptible than, say, mountain resorts. Since the pandemic started, these counties, Morgan, Logan, Washington, Sedgwick, Phillips, and Yuma, have seen just over 9,000 COVID cases and around 200 deaths. The caseload may be relatively low compared to the rest of the state, but so is the vaccination rate. Roughly 45% of those eligible have gotten at least one dose. McLean's department is trying to help people work through their reservations.
4: A big thing there is to help is to try to build some kind of a relationship and to just talk things through. We never want to come across as being like, well, you're wrong and we're right, because I don't know what that person's path has been. I don't know what their experiences have been. I don't know what information that they've, um, what they have. And so I think trying to have an open dialogue and and just be respectful and kind of talk through maybe some of the issues or hesitation. And if somebody's like, well, I heard it could change your DNA. Um, we could talk about, well, this is kind of how the vaccines are made. And this is why they can't change your DNA. But not to say, you know, to to come about it as giving information so that people are like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense.
0: For this mission, the Northeast Colorado Health Department has teamed up with other organizations and companies, including the meatpacking plant.
4: Obviously at the beginning of the pandemic and, you know, in 2020, we definitely saw more cases um, related to Cargill, but they've been really good to work with and have had a pretty strict screening process And we did partner with them earlier this year to bring vaccine to their employees. And I think, I wanna say when all was said and done, we were maybe around 45 or 50% of their employees took advantage of that. So that was really good.
0: One challenge is getting accurate health information out to the many immigrants and refugees in this community, which is why the health department has collaborated with the nonprofit One Morgan County. We popped into their offices here on Main Street to chat with Executive Director Susana Wardato and Head of Programs, Lilia Vieira. Lilia, Susanna, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you. Yes, thank you.
0: There is a world map with a bunch of pins on it behind you. Tell me what this map is.
1: Uh huh. So we put up this map. You'll actually find a lot of holes. So even though you see a lot of pins... A lot of pins have fell through.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Um, and it's really asking where are you from? Uh, where is your family from? We're really trying to make these like connections. Our dream is to like actually string it through, kind of like those detective boards. Oh yeah. So that we can see the connections. Like maybe uh, you have a grandparent that was born in Germany, and now you're in Fort Morgan, and like making those ties.
0: I see pins. Well, read a few of the countries you see, Lilia.
1: Um.
5: Obviously, Somalia. Mexico, areas in Central America, so El Salvador.
0: Now, you said, obviously, Somalia. There are a lot of Somali immigrants and refugees in Fort Morgan.
5: Fort Morgan has been a home to a lot of refugees um, from Somalia because of the local meatpacking plant here and... Over the years, they've just been coming and going, and a lot of them have stayed here for quite a while. But then we also have ones that have relocated here from, like, Minnesota or uh, New York. So you have
1: a lot of, like, secondary resettlements, uh, folks who were resettled in either, like, the Denver area, the Greeley area, um, and they have felt that Fort Morgan is, like, a safe and quiet community uh, for their families, and also for like those singles, you know, like a place that they could um, strictly dedicate themselves to work, build up those funds to send back home or for whatever purpose. So like to really build themselves up.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ford Morgan is such a crossroads. How many languages, how many cultures could you count? Uh-huh. Um, the last count
1: that I got uh, from the school district was that we had 37 languages and dialects.
0: 37 languages and dialects. Yes. In a community of 12,000 people? Yes. And one of your missions lately has been to get people vaccinated. Mm -hmm. How are you finding that mission?
1: I feel as long as we're giving access to folks, uh, so like crossing that multilingual barrier, it's fairly
0: easy. As long as? What do you mean?
1: As long as information is being relied in people's um, home language, their heart language, the language that they understand the most.
5: And in areas that they can get that information from. So if they're using Facebook, or if they're getting mainly their information from like flyers, then we are trying to spread those out in areas that they visit most, the bakery across the street. Right.
0: Okay, so let's say you run into someone whose language you don't speak. What's the next step?
1: We probably have someone on board, if not on the community health worker team that we have with the health department. Uh, I know of someone who like speaks that language.
0: Lilia, tell me when people are hesitant. What are some of the reasons you're hearing, particularly in immigrant or refugee communities?
5: A lot of it has to do with people wanting to wait and see.
0: Like what the health effects are?
5: Yeah. Like this amount of family members I know uh, got vaccinated and nothing's happened to them yet. Like they haven't died or they haven't developed any like crazy health issue. So now I'm going to try.
1: And you have a lot of like pregnant women, women who are nursing on your caseload. I'm kind of waiting for that guidance.
5: None of the people that I've spoken to have been very hesitant, but I have heard from them, the people that they know will (laughs) not change their minds. It's been like conspiracies that they've been listening to and really believing in.
1: For me, again, like I'm still marveled at how many people haven't had access to the vaccine or know where they can get it, demystifying things like it's free. You don't need to provide ID, insurance, anything like that. So it's very like, no, we want to get it. We've been wanting to get it. Where can we get it?
0: You're much more focused on reducing those obstacles Mm. before taking on conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm.
1: Correct. But they come up from time to time. But again, it's probably folks who know English who can entertain conspiracy theories like we have been hearing or seeing that, um, you know, it causes infertility or it hasn't been FDA approved, which now we have the Pfizer vaccine that has. Uh, Full but, FDA yes,
0: approval. Yeah. Correct.
1: So like we note those things mm-hmm. and note to call back folks as data emerges, as research is being verified.
0: Well, that's fascinating. So you build a relationship. It's possible right. you go out and the first time they don't take the vaccine. But then you say, I'm going to call and I'll keep you up to date.
1: Yes. We know that that personal touch uh, within the community. So just to give you an example, like we um, held uh, two clinics at the Catholic Church, knowing that we have a large Latino community here in town uh, who does attend like Spanish Mass, Mm -hmm. uh, listens to the priest. He has been an advocate for the vaccine, Father Eric.
0: So finding the right messenger. Correct.
1: Mm -hmm. So the priest spoke to that at the end um, of his sermon, you know? Like we are really talking about protecting lives. If you have the privilege and uh, the ability to take the vaccine, please do so. Mm -hmm. He pleaded to them, so more of the output where we really didn't have to put in a lot of work. We were Mm -hmm. just language support. Yeah, we were just there that second time. But we're making those connections, like making sure that the bus is showing up there.
0: When you say the buses came in, health buses that were doing vaccinations.
1: Uh, Yes, Uh per the state. It's
0: interesting, in the priest's message, I heard a pro-life message, almost. Mm. To what extent do you think, Lilia, immigration status, a fear of federal authority, uh, a fear of perhaps for folks who have come from war-torn nations or places where the government can't be trusted, is that playing into this, do you think, for folks?
5: Uh, Well, a lot of the messaging that we do is based around that. So we try to really push out there that you don't need special documentation or insurance or you, yeah, you don't need your ID or anything. Yeah. It should be cost-free, like no matter where you you go in the state.
0: Of course, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are two dose. Mm -hmm. How much trouble or not are you having, getting people to show up a second time, right? So you've coaxed them to that Door the first time, Mm -hmm. which as we heard, can be a real relationship building. Right. How's the second going? And maybe now, I hate to Mm -hmm. bring up the third, but now we're talking (laughs) about boosters, right?
1: Yes. So internally, we've been talking about boosters. We're looking at a October um, kind of date for ourselves as staff. I would say for the languages and dialects where we're not as... There's not as much concrete support as there is in the Spanish language, that there's probably a lot to still demystify.
0: Mm. So About um, the third dose? Correct. Okay. Well, a
1: second dose even. Oh, I see. Uh, we had printed materials in various languages, but it's probably that they need to hear it, communicating that orally.
0: I want to point out that a little further into this office, there are shelves of food and racks of clothing. What are we looking at here?
1: So the shelves of food are the remnants of our rapid response delivery program. So we were early on, starting in May, serving families who were ineligible for other supports uh, who had COVID or who had been impacted by COVID. So let's say like a workplace shut down because of an outbreak or um, they didn't have access to medical care, but they knew that they had to be quarantined. We were serving them. This was supposed to be an eight-week project where we would uh, deliver, personally deliver, culturally relevant food items anywhere from 40 to 60 pounds worth of food. Uh, You had your milk there, your cilantro there, um, your eggs, milk. Tortillas. Tortillas, rice. Maseca. (laughs) Si. Sabor de pollo. So like that seasoning, you put that chicken seasoning that you put on your rice. And we actually ended up going over to December um it was difficult but like really rewarding like we would see a lot of kids you know just wave through the window Mm. parents were probably at work um sometimes parents would come out uh folks that we had spoken to and you know like
6: Mm -hmm. thank you so
1: much so it was really rewarding regardless of the work that we had to do you know driving all the way to denver um to get the food
0: Mm -hmm. yes you would a lot of it at low cost Uh uh-huh yes Uh, Yes, rewarding and exhausting. Rewarding and exhausting,
1: uh but that was like the base of the folks that Lilia has been calling for the vaccine efforts.
0: So you developed that relationship even before a vaccine was available. Correct. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What about the clothing, these rags?
1: The clothing. So we had a woman uh, come in tell us that her dad had passed away um, and that she had clothing to donate. Uh, What we didn't know was that she was also going to give women's clothing, um, a lot of like collectible (laughs) items. So we have like a first edition uh, DVD Titanic set (laughs) somewhere in the back. But it has been, you know, useful. Uh, We have promotoras working out in the fields who are seeing like farm workers who need um, long sleeve shirts. Mm. So we are working at like building out a closet, as you can see, like the shelves. Are um, We're hoping that they become permanent just because we've had more and more people wanting to donate uh, for various causes. Like we had a woman call last week wanting to donate items for potential um, Afghani refugees mm-hmm. um, in the area, even though we really don't expect them here as kind of like a, a first touch point, maybe as secondary. But we were available for all of that. We have mattresses upstairs as well, you know, whatever people need. We probably know of someone or have something here on site.
0: Do you know people who died of COVID?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Personally and then in the community. And I think regardless of that, it always felt personal to us because we were doing a lot of that language support, um, that translating, that interpreting. So we were like hearing firsthand um, what people were going through in the hospitals, what people were experiencing once they left the hospitals, like those secondary effects, like...
0: The long haul symptoms. The long hauls, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: I would say since the beginning, since like masks were recommended, like we, we have been wearing them. We have been giving them out to community. My tally is a little off, but I know that um, at least I have bought more than 5,000 masks. Whoa. But we have gotten more donated or like through state efforts, like just sent our way um, where we're still doing the math.
0: Thank you both for being with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.
0: Lilia Vieira and Susanna Guardado of One Morgan County, which is supporting immigrants and refugees in the pandemic. We spoke at their offices here on Main Street in Fort Morgan. Schools in Morgan County are among the most diverse in the state. At Columbine Elementary School, a program uses languages to strengthen students' sense of community. CPR's Carla Jimenez has the story.
7: After an entire year interrupted by COVID, the students of Columbine Elementary School are back in the classroom, learning in person. On this morning in Mrs. Pagan's fifth grade class, the students are learning about geography. The students take turns reading aloud from the textbook, written in Spanish. Ten-year-old Amreen Chima is not a native Spanish speaker, but she reads like one.
6: Las líneas de están por la misma y se exide, de norte a sur entre el polo, polo norte y el polo, polo sur.
7: These students are part of Columbine Elementary School's dual immersion program, where 50% of the curriculum is taught in English and the other half is taught in Spanish. The school implemented the program five years ago, the then superintendent wanted to bring it to
3: Northeast Colorado. Nick Ng is the principal. The magic about having a uh, two-way program is that the native speakers can help their cohorts, the, the ones who are learning Spanish, and then vice versa. We'll have uh, Spanish-speaking students, and then our, our English-speaking students will help them in turn in the other half of the day. So it, it really does build a, a, a strong, supportive community.
7: Programs like these are rethinking how native Spanish speakers learn English. Dual immersion is designed to put students on an even playing field academically, since both cohorts are learning a new language, and ultimately it helps both groups in the long run. A study of a similar program in Portland, Oregon showed the students had a much higher level of English and reading comprehension overall. The dual immersion program at Columbine Elementary is based on a similar program in Utah. The long-term goal is to have both cohorts of students fluent in both languages by the time they graduate high school.
3: When the program was first introduced, Ng said there was a little trepidation among parents. Parents would ask, like, um, how does it compare to the traditional uh, curriculum? Because we, we, we had to use brand new curriculum for this. Um, they, you know, they would ask, you know, will, will our children... Uh, uh, fall behind even because learning another language, will they, will they be struggling? And yet the answer was yes, yes, it is harder. Uh, however, uh, data has, uh, and we used other, p- other schools' data, it shows, yes, in the beginning, they, it might show that they are uh, not on par with the traditional cohorts. However, after third grade, they take off. They actually then, th- that curve uh, actually takes a sharper uh, direction up uh, and we're seeing it.
7: The students in Mrs. Pagans' class have been learning through this program since the first grade. Ten-year-old Allie Salisbury says it was tough going at first.
6: Yeah, like when we had to, like had to write things and do projects. I kind of was the one that was in the corner, like doing nothing, because I didn't know how to speak Spanish or write. Or, so,
7: when did you start to feel more confident about it?
6: Um, I feel like second grade or third. Cause I had I did a year, and then I knew what I was doing. So I got used to it. The first year I did it, and now I'm in fifth grade, and I still do it.
7: She also told me the program has helped her communicate more easily with her native Spanish-speaking friends.
6: If we say, "Can you go grab like something from a teacher," and he doesn't know what we said, we'll say, "Puedo ir." Ve a una clase, and he'll go over there and do what we told him to. But we don't want him to feel like he has to do everything for us. We just want him to feel comfortable around us because he's our friend. These friendships
7: are a designed side effect. Here's Ng again.
3: What I anticipate happening is actually through their um, educational careers, Though these children are going to have a, a very strong bond. Um, the district is very supportive, so we're already in the, in the works of setting up middle school Spanish programs for them. And then in turn, it will be high school. So we are following these children, and we're monitoring, uh, we're adapting to their needs. Um, And those kids, they'll, by default, they're gonna find themselves in a lot of classes together. So yeah, uh, uh, they don't have too much say in this one, but yeah, so they're gonna be good friends for a long time.
7: In the meantime, the students continue to build up their language skills. Ali's even found instances when she can use her Spanish outside of school.
6: Like when we go out of the country and like go to like Mexico and Jamaica, like they all like speak Spanish. So, like, when they're, like, talking in Spanish, when we order food, like, we have to talk in Spanish. In Fort Morgan, I'm Carla Jimenez.
0: And thanks for that story, Carla. Colorado Matters on the Road Again continues in the next half hour with why we're broadcasting from an old movie theater in Fort Morgan. I'll say that I had the loveliest drive here coming from our last stop in Colorado Springs. I passed through Falcon and Calhan and Last Chance. Last Chance used to be a final opportunity to get gas and grub outside of Denver. This was before the construction of I-70. My route also took me through Bennett and Roggen, Colorado. German, I learned for Rye which is fun because my nickname growing up was rye bread. So a shout out to Roggen, Colorado, population 522. From Fort Morgan, I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Strictly speaking,
8: in Colorado, a buffalo is a collegiate athlete from Boulder, whereas a bison is the great hulking, humped and hoofed animal that once covered the Great Plains. Tens of millions of them. A distant relative of the true buffaloes of Asia and Africa, the American bison has always played a role in our nation's story. Native people knew every part of the bison had value. Many settlers moving westward thought otherwise. And by 1900, the continent's largest mammal was at the edge of extinction. But conservation efforts soon kicked in. In 1914, the city of Denver established a herd of bison with two from the zoo and a few more from Yellowstone. Today, you can see their descendants alongside I-70 in Genesee Park. And in the San Luis Valley, a herd of 2,000 roaming a 50,000-acre pasture. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio.
0: I've kept you in suspense as to why we're hosting the show from a century-old movie theater in Fort Morgan, the Cover Theater. Well, it's at the heart of a downtown reboot. Buildings on Main Street, including this one, are getting spruced up. And one family's responsible for a lot of it. I met Donnie Edson, who was born and raised here. Edson is a bulk food supplier. Quinoa, he's got it. Chia, dried papaya, he's got that too. But he and his family also scooped up several blocks downtown that needed some TLC.
2: We're in Theater One, the original theater of the Cover Theater. 275 seats. What is showing here now?
0: Are you showing movies in the pandemic?
2: Now we are, yeah. Hollywood started to release movies again, so we're showing new releases again. Before that, we were showing old movies. The most popular one was Goonies. Oh, Goonies! That's a nice throwback. I remember loving that as a kid. And what's showing
0: in Auditorium One these days? Uh, Right now in Theater One is Paw Patrol. Our fate is in there. Pause. Tell me what this theater means in Fort Morgan.
2: Well, it's been here for 100 years. And I think anybody who grew up in town here has memories of coming here as a kid and in middle school and getting in trouble in middle school, maybe even getting kicked out of middle school. And then coming here on dates when they were in high school. It adds a lot of nostalgic feelings for a lot of people in town here. And we're the only first-run movie theater that gets the new releases within about a 50-mile radius. The closest would be Greeley and then Brighton after that. There is a really great theater in Brush as well, the Sands Theater. Single screen that they—recently um, the community came together and they renovated it and redid it all so they could keep showing movies there as well, too. Are you plugging another movie theater? What a
0: generous businessman you are.
2: Hey, they're friends of ours, so they got to be show movies as well. Tell me about the marquee
0: during the pandemic. There was a time when you were... (laughs) Yeah, sure. There was the time you were closed.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We wanted to have some fun and uh, make people laugh a little bit. So we would try to think of something funny to put on the marquee every week. We'd come and change it. Yeah, one of the best ones was uh, none of this happened until the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. (laughs) At least toilet paper got its 15 minutes of fame. (laughs) You forget about the toilet paper crisis that happened at the very beginning of COVID. It's hard to uh, go back and actually track everything that happened on a weekly basis, so.
0: You do not just own the movie theater. You have a lot of interests in town. It's partly why we wanted to talk to you, and a lot of those interests are downtown. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so when we bought the movie theater, there were eight empty buildings on Main Street on the block that we're in, and growing up, I don't know if it's just my childhood memories, but it seemed like downtown was always a lot busier than it is now, and so... One of our goals when we bought the movie theater was to be able to buy other buildings and start to fix them up and drive people downtown again. Something that would drive people downtown during the daytime just to get downtown going again. It's very important. We all have a passion for Fort Morgan and seeing it succeed. We have our families here, our businesses here. So we started to buy uh, different buildings and and start renovating them. The very first one we did, a a really cool barbershop moved into. And he's more or less outgrown it now. He has eight seats in there, and he's open until 9 o'clock at night, and it's busy all the time with that. He's outgrown it. Did you do that on purpose? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Another vision we had was anything that had a second floor we wanted to start to build housing inside of. So above the barbershop, we just finished our first kind of loft that overlooks Main Street. And uh, the building next to us on the north side of the theater has been a number of things. Most notably, for a long time, it was a pharmacy. That building, we are doing a complete gut on right now. And on the main floor, we're going to make that the lobby and concession stand for the movie theater. So we can have multiple ticket windows. When this theater started, it was just one theater. and Now there's four theaters inside of it. So when we get busy, the line goes down the block because there's only one ticket window and there's no space to put another ticket window. The other thing is our concession stand gets really busy because we have the original space that was built for one theater, not for four theaters. So we have to stagger our start times. We have to get really creative to be able to get people in and, and get them taken care of really well and in time for the movies. Let me just
0: interrupt to say that unlike some Plains communities, Morgan County, according to the latest census, is growing. And you mentioned housing. Talk to me about the desire, not just for businesses downtown, but for housing in downtown Fort Morgan.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, well one thing, housing is too expensive to build right now. So there's a shortage of housing here. And everything that's here already is occupied. And the prices have surged too. They've gone up tremendously. So it's important to have more areas for people to live as there's a lot of businesses that hire people here, but they can't get people here to live. What is your hope for Fort Morgan? Hmm. Think about that. I would just like to see Fort Morgan become the main town east of Denver on the plains, you know, with access for all the people who live here to have nice restaurants, nice places to go get a drink, activities for the kids, um, Thanks to really make it a community. It's a great community already. Don't get me wrong, but to have access to all the things that people leave Fort Morgan to go find. Contrast that with your experience growing up here. Well, I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere and we never came to town, but uh, (laughs) well, that's,
0: that that is contrasting, isn't (laughs)
2: it? (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of the memories I have from growing up, uh, you know, come back to coming to the movies here or going to the county fair. Or going to a high school football game or a sporting event, things like that. You know, maybe going to the city pool. So there were activities for us, but you know, there was never a rec center. Which they just built a rec center here, and it's fantastic. There was never you know new restaurants that were so you could go try a new ingredient. There are awesome restaurants here too. I don't want to say that there aren't, but there's things that are in the city that don't exist here that would be great to have in Fort Morgan.
0: We've reflected some on the. Immigrant and refugee population in Fort Morgan. I wonder as a, as a business owner, as a resident of this community, how you see the increasing diversification of Fort Morgan as part of
2: its identity and its future. I think it's fantastic that when you go to school here, you have a chance to meet people from so many cultures and get to know them and, and learn about their backgrounds and their history and how they ended up in Fort Morgan. I also think it's great how the communities come together over the years, you know, maybe it wasn't great in the beginning, but it's great now of welcoming people in and and accepting them and making them a part of the community. It's really important because Fort Morgan's forever had people coming from different countries into Fort Morgan to work here. And so it's great because now they're just part of the community. They're part of the schools. When you talk to kids from the high school in a scholarship interview and you ask them what's it like to go to such a diverse high school, they say, "It's, it's no different because we grew up around this. We've always been around it. So it's just part of our lives.
0: Donnie, a lot of what you envision is growth. And growth can have its fans and its detractors. You know, folks who say, we don't have the room or, or we don't want to lose our quality of, of
2: life. W- w- reflect on growth in Fort Morgan for me. I think growth's really important because you have to move with the times. People are always going to be being born and they need somewhere to live. So there's two options you can welcome them, grow with them, make it a community, make it a better community, a stronger community. Or as other towns in eastern Colorado have seen, you can force them away, you know, or or not want growth and your town can slowly start to shrivel up. And then your schools run out of money, they run out of teachers. It's important if you want to have, you know, good programs and good things in town, you have good people in town and they come with growth. So I think it's really important for the community to, to thrive and to have a place that people want to live in or stay in or move back to like I did has to have some of these things that come along with growth. Is there enough water? Is there enough land? Is there enough infrastructure? Infrastructure, for sure. The city's done a great job of taking care of all their utilities, bringing an aloe next door to do fiber optic for the entire town. Water, they did a really good job of securing water rights from the Big Thompson Project. And there's there's land. You have to keep going further out from town. I mean, sadly, sometimes it impedes on, on agriculture, which isn't good. But there's other areas of land that aren't used for agriculture that can also be used for growth. Is there a
0: balance between the kind of
2: growth you're talking about and the rootedness in ag? Oh, ag's still the biggest part of our, our economy in Fort Morgan. It's the most important part of it, I think, because it's based off of the sugar factory that started here. that produces sugar still to this day, one of the few ones left in the country. Is that sugar beets? Sugar beets, yeah. The dairies... The Leprino cheese factory, the cargill factory that, that processes meat here. Those are instrumental in the city. If if any of them leave, it would hurt us really, really bad um, to not have them around here. So there's there's always got to be a balance with it.
0: I'm really glad I got to meet you. And have you seen Paw Patrol yet?
2: Nope. I'm coming this weekend with my daughter.
0: Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Donnie Edson, owner of the Cover Movie Theater on Main Street in Fort Morgan. After the interview, he handed me a one-page history of the cover. This picture house showed silent movies early on with an organist. There were live performances here, too. Vaudeville acts would take to the stage in between reels. The cover was also a symbol of segregation in Fort Morgan. It used to serve white people, while the now-shuttered USA Theatre served the Hispanic population. we were in town, I'd hoped to stop by a Greek restaurant called Elaine's Place. Throughout the pandemic, we've checked in with its owner, Danette Garlis, who has struggled to keep the doors open. Before COVID, she hosted a lot of banquets, and those dried up. So before we got to town, I rang up the restaurant.
3: We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again.
0: I checked to make sure I had the right number. I did. Then I tried Garlis's cell. Danette? Yes? Hey, this is Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.
9: Yes, Ryan. How are you doing?
0: Well, I'm okay. I wonder if you might have two minutes for me to just throw uh, this into record and just get an update from you.
9: Well, you can, but I don't have the restaurant anymore. It's old. It's sold. yeah, yeah. It's sold. Which I was glad because we just couldn't get it back the way it was. So it was there that way.
0: And do you blame the pandemic?
9: Oh, yes and no. I, you know, I I don't know. It could be just I blame the people. <laughs> You know, yeah, I guess the pandemic, but, you know, people too. I don't know. I don't know.
0: Hard to get the customer base, you mean?
9: Yeah. Yeah, it was.
0: Did you stay in Fort Morgan?
9: No, I actually decided to get an RV and live the quiet world for a while.
0: You've escaped to the quiet world, you say?
9: Yes. Yes.
0: And that means traveling yeah. the country? Yeah. And how's that going?
9: Yeah. Uh, not bad. Not bad. I bought a used uh, motorhome, so I've had some issues with it. That's what happens when you buy used, uh, you know, anything. <laughs> but other than that, it's you know, pretty good. Yeah, it's really relaxing. I'm going have to go to work eventually, but right now it's kind of nice getting away from the whole world.
0: Yeah, well, and the constancy of running a restaurant, I mean, that is just relentless.
9: Oh, it is, because you're you got to be there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I mean, even if you're only open like we were from 11 to 8 and 9 on the weekends, you have to be there before you open till after you close and even on the days that you're closed because there's stuff you got to get done. So, I mean, it's been kind of hard not getting up and I get up every morning still at 5.30, but it's been a little difficult not having something to do, with the exception of, you know, my RV, working on it and making it my temporary home.
0: Yeah, I can understand both feeling the freedom of not having the daily grind, but then also that that opens up a lot of new space, and, and that includes headspace. Um, I know that right. it, it, it was your dream to open a restaurant. You named Elaine's Place for your late mother. And right. as relieved as I hear you to be, uh, was this bittersweet to some extent?
9: Yeah, it's bittersweet. But I, I think my mom was stepping down saying, Jeanette, you did the right thing. I mean, the cell was just like out of the blue, actually. One of our customers walked in and said, is your guy this place still for sale? And I go, yeah. He goes, how much? And I said, well, here's the flyer. (laughs) And that afternoon, he came back with a proposal to purchase it. So I, I mean, we didn't get the money that we should have got out of it, but I'm all about God always gives you the right time, (laughs) you know? And so I said, hmm, okay, it's time, you know?
0: And I think you said earlier that you felt you had your mom's blessing.
9: I think so, yes, I did. Yep, I I do. Otherwise, she wouldn't have brought me to buy her. (laughs) No?
0: (laughs) I'm curious. Are you making Greek food on the road?
9: I do cook for myself. Yes, I love my Greek food. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I love my Greek food. It's hard to find the ingredients out on the road, but, you know, yeah, it's fun, though. I'm enjoying it immensely so far. Like I said, I I get a little bored because I don't have to get up and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But other than that, I'm learning how to relax a little. Dinette,
0: thank you so much for being with us. I, I wish you the best in this next chapter.
9: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Danette Garlis, the now-former owner of Elaine's Place here in Fort Morgan. Let's put her experience into some context. The Colorado Restaurant Association recently surveyed its members and found that more than a quarter may close permanently. Reasons include debt, higher overhead, and a severe labor shortage. Virtually every restaurateur who responded said they'd had to raise prices. Many have taken on new debt in the pandemic, an average of $180,000. According to this survey, restaurants have also raised pay by an average of 19% in the last year and a half. By the way, guess who bought Danette Garlis's restaurant here in Fort Morgan? Yep, Donnie Edson and his family, the movie theater owners. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters on the road again from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters on the road again. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner, And now, a fun fact about Fort Morgan. Chattanooga choo-choo by legendary big band leader Glenn Miller. It's the first record to sell more than a million copies, achieving gold status in 1942. Ford Morgan is proud to call Miller one of its own. He's considered the high school's most famous graduate. Miller was a star player on the football team. We've seen menu items here named after him. Our producer, Carla Jimenez, spied a ton of books about him at the local library. Miller attended CU Boulder before hitting it big as a big band leader, but his death is shrouded in mystery. In 1944, he was an army major headed to France to perform for Allied troops. His plane went down in the ocean. Dennis Sprague is an expert in all things Glenn Miller and wrote a book about his findings. I spoke with him in 2014 as he unraveled what might have occurred. So Glenn Miller went missing on December 15th, 1944. Um, He was last seen boarding a plane at Twinwood Airfield in Bedford, England, to cross the English Channel. And he was going to get things ready to move the band to Paris in liberated France. Uh, The public didn't find out immediately. Uh, News reports came out days later. Let's listen to bulletins from the BBC and CBS from that time.
8: Major Glenn Miller, the well-known American band leader, is reported missing. He left England by air for Paris nine days ago. Major Glenn Miller came over from the States early this year to direct the American Band of the AEF, which has often been heard playing in the Allied Expeditionary Forces program of the BBC.
9: This is London. Major Glenn Miller, director of the U.S. Air Force Band, is missing on a flight from England to Paris, it was announced today. No trace of the plane has been found.
0: You became fascinated with this story. The plane was never found, nor were the bodies. How did you happen upon this story and decide to dig into it?
10: In 2009, Glenn Miller's son, Steve Miller, who has since passed away from cancer, Steve was pretty much fed up with having spent most of his adult life dealing with conspiracy theories. And he said, I trust you to take the ball on this thing and go with it. And if you want to do it, will you please go study the situation, go anywhere you need to go, open any files you need to open, ask for permission to go anywhere you can, but find out what really happened?
0: There have been many theories over the years about Miller's disappearance. One was that the plane he was in went down in the English Channel in a friendly fire incident involving Britain's Royal Air Force. Not the case, though widely accepted as a theory, I guess.
10: Yes, actually since it was first proposed in the mid nineteen eighties, it has evolved into perhaps the most widely accepted theory about what happened to Miller, but I can state unequivocally, based upon my research that it did not happen. I think that was a case of mistaken identity. On that day, a group of Lancaster bombers, one hundred and thirty eight of them to be precise, was recalled from a bombing mission to Siegen, Germany, and They had to jettison bombs in both the North Sea and the English Channel on their way home to their bases because they would be too heavy to land. And according to United States Army Air Force records, Miller's plane didn't happen into the same general vicinity in the English Channel until about 10 minutes of 3 to 3 o'clock that Ah, afternoon. The time does not work out. The times don't work out.
0: Another theory is that Glenn Miller, like other entertainers, uh, including Josephine Baker, may have been spies and that he was assassinated. Um, He had close ties to actor David Niven, who had served in an elite role in the British military. Uh, This, too, you find is is a, a false claim.
10: Yes, David Niven did go into the British military in 1939 and did volunteer for service, combat service as a commando and briefly served in that type of unit. But, as is the case of many major celebrities and famous people, the British government found him more valuable to them in movie parts and radio than in combat, much to Niven's frustration. And David Niven, as director of troop broadcasting, was Glenn Miller's direct report. He was Miller's boss.
0: And there's just no substantiation to the idea that either of them were... Spies, you know, they they might have been propagandists,
10: right? But not spies. Well, there is a difference between broadcasting music or information to the enemy from England, as opposed to being clandestine agents in the field running around the continent, you know, putting yourself at risk. Miller and, to some extent, Niven were both involved in what we call propaganda broadcasts to the German people and the German armed forces, but their primary mission was troop broadcasting, which was music and entertainment and information for the Allied forces, American, British, and Canadian. And now
0: to what you have uncovered. You were researching this book, and you discovered yes. some some old military and other records, uh, some that had long been declassified, right? They're secret, but nobody ever went through them.
10: No. There are, are hundreds of documents in the American and British records at multiple locations, United States Air Force, National Archives in the United States, RAF Museum, Imperial War Museum, British National Archives, and other locations that are relevant to Miller. The problem is, if you go looking for the name Glenn Miller, you're not going to find a lot of information, because the information isn't classified under his name. It's stored and available, if you want to dig far enough, under military unit names or place names oh. in other words you have to do a lot of detective work to dig through the files and for example the airplane Miller was traveling on that day was in the 8th Air Force Service Command
0: What did you find when you were able to follow the paper trail?
10: Well the Nordine UC64a that Miller was traveling upon, on, was flown that day under visual flight rules. In other words, the pilot had to maintain contact with the ground or the water when he was flying over instead of the clouds. And what what basically happened was the pilot who was experienced on this route, he flew it regularly, was flying lower than he normally would, and he entered into a situation where because of the air temperature and the relative humidity and the presence of precipitation, he exposed the aircraft to icing conditions. And... The icing took three forms engine icing, carburetor icing, and induction ice. And that's the kind of ice that forms in the fuel tanks or the fuel lines feeding fuel into the engine.
0: And so, therefore, the ice blocks the fuel from getting in, and a fuelless plane is not one that stays in the air for very long. You can do the math. It took about eight seconds
10: to hit the water. Huh. Now, a plane hitting water at 150 miles an hour disintegrates.
0: Ah. Based
10: upon the construction of the aircraft.
0: Right. So it's not like you're going to find the whole thing intact, floating in the channel.
10: No, this wasn't an aluminum plane. It was built from wood and fabric, basically, except for the engine in the cockpit. So what would happen would be the aircraft would shatter upon impact. And the forensics were that the engine would immediately sink with what's left of the cabin. And it was not a survivable accident. In other words, the occupants were likely killed instantaneously.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Dennis Sprague is senior consultant of the Glenn Miller archives at CU Boulder. We spoke in 2014. Here in Fort Morgan, Miller is celebrated as the most famous high school graduate.
2: I'm Robert Ingersoll and the owner of Zazzy Cafe in downtown Fort Morgan. And this is Colorado Matters on the road. The team guiding your journey is...
8: Carl Bielek.
3: Allie Budner.
8: Anthony
2: Cotton.
3: Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher.
2: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes.
3: Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill.
2: Pedro Lumbrano.
0: Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. with special thanks to Elena Vetter for building our itinerary. Next week, it's Avery Lill in Grand Junction, the Four Corners, and the San Luis Valley. This is Colorado Matters on the road from CPR News and KRCC.